I've enjoyed the worship thus far, and um, it's such a joy to celebrate the coming of Christ and sing of that. And uh, we're going to look now in in our Bibles at Matthew chapter number 2. Matthew chapter number 2 is going to be our text for this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse number 12. And we've been in a series just through the remaining of December on changed lives at Christ's advent. And so we've been looking at uh, some of the different encounters of people surrounding the arrival of Christ into this world. And uh, so today we're looking at one that uh, is one of my favorites. It's somewhat mysterious and unique, but I think there's a lot of great truth here that we can glean, and that is the account of the Magi, or the wise men who come from afar to seek Jesus. And so uh, the title of the message this morning is Seeking Jesus from Afar. Seeking Jesus from Afar. So let's look at Matthew chapter number 2, and we'll begin there. And I want to read verse 1 down through verse number 12. The Scripture says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose, and it came and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You ever read this passage, and as you read this passage, you just generate some questions uh, about this passage Uh, Many questions arise from it concerning these wise men. Who were they? We don't know their names. We don't know much about them other than what we see in this text. Where did they come from? Why did they know to come and see the king of the Jews? How did they know that a king of the Jews had been born? What was this star that they followed, this shining star? You see, the account of the wise men is somewhat mysterious and There's a lot of assumptions that are made about it that you'll recognize even in the Christmas season uh, that you'll see. Just to give you a few, one legend says that these wise men were kings. Another says that the Magi represented three races of mankind, the Japhetic, the Hamitic, and the Semitic lines. According to tradition, the names of the Magi were Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, Another story pictures one wise man as youthful, one middle-aged, and one as very old. Any of y'all heard of any of those traditions? 
Some of them are different areas of the world. They, they conclude these, and others are here. We often hear of them as being kings or being three. Uh, but one thing we must understand is that these indeed are traditions, and they are largely based on the idea that there was only three wise men. The Bible doesn't tell us a number, does it? It's assumed that there was three because of the three gifts, but in reality, there could have been a lot more than just three. But what we've heard about these kings, what I've heard about these wise men, we've heard a lot of things about them, but there's really not a whole lot that's spoken about them here in this text. But one thing that is unmistakable is that these wise men, they experienced something that not many have experienced before. They experienced being able to see the young child Jesus having come from a very far land all for that very purpose of seeing the one who was promised to come. You see, they took their long journey under God's providence and saw with their own eyes the true king of the Jews, and may we say also, the true king of all creation. You see, this king they came to behold was not sitting on a throne with great power and glory. We find him in a lowly town in just a house, a town of Bethlehem where we find him. And what can we affirm beyond doubt is that the lives of these wise men were truly impacted as a result of the advent of Christ. We can imagine them going back home, having come that long journey and seeing this king who was born and seeing all of this and coming back home to where they came from with this news. Now, throughout these accounts of Christ's birth and his arrival, we've seen People changed and impacted by it. We've looked already at announcements that were given that uh, impacted Zechariah and Elizabeth. We've looked at the Virgin Mary last week. We looked at Joseph on, on Wednesday. Now, when you look at these accounts, these were all Jews, and they were all in the proximity of Israel, weren't they? They were near to where Jesus was born. But this account is different with the wise men. They weren't near Israel's land. In fact, they most likely were not Jewish in their lineage. And yet, what do we find with them? They were seeking Jesus from a far and distant place. So who were they? And how did this encounter impact them? I want to bring us through this text and present to us some truths that I find are very interesting. They might not intrigue you as much as they intrigue me, but the Magi have always intrigued me and caught my attention. But notice with me in our notes here this morning, number one, I want you to see the expedition of the wise men. The expedition or their journey. This, this, this long, this long journey they went on. They had a long quest to see Jesus. That's what we find. Now, the question comes to our mind from this text. Who were these wise men? Were they really kings? They're often portrayed as kings. Is that true? What does it mean that they were wise? Well, the word used here for wise men is, is the Greek term magos, and it refers to a magus, a wise man by the lexicon definition here, or a priest, one who was an expert in astrology, interpretation of dreams, and various other uh, occult arts. So many call them wise men, many call them magi. Uh, some translations will transliterate that Greek word, and so your translation may have magi there. Uh, instead of wise men. But what, what is it that makes them wise? Why are they called this? Well, when we look at this, Matthew is probably using the word in a more general sense 
for the learned core advisors of Mesopotamia or Persia. These advisors, they worked involved and were involved in studying ancient and sacred texts as well as watching the movement of the stars and or planets that might be interpreted as having some kind of a divine message. But here's what I want you to see is central to who they are, is their intelligence and their study practices. They were well-educated, especially in what we would call astrology, all right? What is astrology? It's, it's the study of the movements and relative positions of the celestial bodies, the stars and things that we see in the heavens, looking out into space. So they, they, were studies, they were students of that sort of thing. And I found this interesting, too is that the Wycliffe, uh, that Wycliffe and his associates, they rendered this word as astronomers in some of the earliest translations based on the context of the story. Uh, the Greek there has been translated into English as wise men ever since Tyndale uh, in 1534. So in calling them wise men, they were understood to be intelligent, well-studied men. They were the intellectuals of that day. They were very prominent in their land and in their culture. Now, notice with me as we come through this also, where did these wise men come from? What does the Bible tell us? Well, the Bible says that from the east, they came to Jerusalem. From the east, they came to Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't give us a specific Location or a specific town? How far east do you go? But since we know their occupation by the very word that's used to describe them and the direction which they came from, we can generally determine that these wise men, these magi, they come from where what once was Babylon or the Persian Empire. Now, why do we think that that might be significant? Do we recall any Bible history? that takes place in that area of the world, in the Babylonian and Persian era area. This would be the same place where the Babylonians once ruled, where the Jews were carried off in exile. Do we know any specific Jewish people that come to mind that had great influence and left a mark there in Babylon in Persia? Can we think of any? How about Daniel? How about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? These men... Some of my favorite men to study in the book of Daniel. Now, now what did Daniel write about the kinds of people that the kings in that area sought counsel from? Well, here's what we read in Daniel 2 and verse 2. It says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. That description is a description of what would have been known as the Magi, the wise men of that day in time. In fact, you'll find the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament's in Hebrew, but the Greek translation of the Old Testament into Greek is the same word. It's magos. It's the same word used to describe these people. And so what we find, just as as we kind of get some background information here, These magi are powerful and prominent men in that day and time. And what do we find these powerful and prominent men doing? They are seeking Jesus, the King of the Jews, the most powerful and prominent of all. Now, they know something of the importance of the arrival of Jesus, the King of the Jews. They know enough 
that it is worth them journeying a very long and even dangerous journey, all for the sake of coming to see this one who is the king of the Jews. Now, the wise men likely traveled with a large number of people with them, possibly even guards for that kind of a journey. For example, if they had come from Babylon by the main trade route of that day, it would have been roughly 800 miles. Averaging 20 miles per day, that trip would have taken them about 40 days. Now, keep in mind, they didn't have airplanes, they didn't have trains, they didn't have cars. I mean, they're on foot and camel and horse. This is a very long, laborious journey. It's not an easy trip at all. So, notice this major endeavor they're engaging in, and this brings us to what happens when they arrive here in Jerusalem. Notice with me, letter B, not only did we see their long quest to seek Jesus, we see they had a sobering question about Jesus, and this is where we tend to see things unfold, all right? The sobering question about them. Now, as they come to the land of Israel, they come all the way to Jerusalem, and surely the king of the Jews would be born where? The holy city of Israel, right? The most holy city. Surely this is where the throne is. Surely this is where kings had ruled in the past. If the king of the Jews was to be born, surely it would be in Jerusalem, the holy city. They come in verse 2 and notice verse 2. Here's their question. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So here's this entourage of magi. They don't fit in with the Jewish culture. They're not of the Jews. And they're asking people the question, where's the king of the Jews? Now, do you think that might have caused a little bit of a stir? These outsiders traveling in here, prominent men, asking this question. Well, this this question eventually, this news gets back to Herod the Great, who in verse 1 is called who? Herod the what? The king. He's known as Herod the king. What is he the king over? Well, guess what Herod has the title of? He is the one who held the title of King of the Jews by Rome's authority and designation. See, he is looked to as the ruler over Jerusalem and the Jewish people in that area. But here's what I want you to notice. There's a difference, though, when the Magi ask for Jesus. Notice in verse 2, they ask, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Now, that's entirely different than being appointed king of the Jews by some earthly power, right? And so the Magi understand that this child, he's the king of the Jews by birthright. This is who he is. Not because someone else gives him this title, but because this is who he is. The Magi are convinced that this child who was born not too long ago is the rightful king of the Jews. And they were exactly right. But what do you notice throughout the ministry and life of Jesus? That's one of the claims used against Jesus, isn't it? What did the Jews use against Pilate? What you bring to Pilate in order to try to get him condemned? They said, he says he's the son of God, but also what else did they say? They said, he says he's the king of what? The Jews the king of the Jews. You see, the Romans even would mock Jesus as he's hanging on the cross with the sign they put on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 37, and over his head they put a charge against him. Not an honorable title, 
but a charge which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was a mockery, the crucified one hanging there, and over his head is, this is the King of the Jews. What kind of a king is dying in agony and bloodshed, suffocating to death on the cross? What kind of a king endures such a thing? It was a form of mockery to him. You see, regardless of what Herod, the Jews, or any other person might think, the truth remains that Jesus is king. And here's the glory of his kingship. He didn't have to fight to become king. He didn't have to be voted in as king. He simply is king. He simply is king. And someday, all the world will recognize this truth in the end, as Paul wrote to Timothy. He said in 1 Timothy 6.15 about Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so understand, the world may not recognize Jesus as King and Lord now, but there is coming a day when they will. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me tell you this. It's better for you to recognize this now than later on Judgment Day. little hint there. Now what kind of response would we expect from Herod, the king, and others? Well, in verse 3 we read that he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, a little insight here. As you read of King Herod in history... He was a paranoid maniac, vicious, vile man. He was so protective of his power as king that he committed great atrocities just to protect that power. So much that he even had his own two sons killed because he thought by rumor they were threatening his power. We see his paranoia later in this chapter. What's he do? After he realizes the wise men left him and didn't do what he he asked them to do, He orders all the male children, two years old and under, to be killed. Why? He did not want another king of the Jews to threaten his power. So the arrival of the true king of the Jews presents a great threat to Herod's throne and to the corrupt religious and political leadership in Israel. You can imagine how this sparked great turmoil for Herod in Jerusalem. So when Herod heard these things, what's he demand? Well, in verse 4, he got all the religious leaders together and inquired of them, where Christ was to be born. And guess what? They found the prophecy that tells where he's going to be born. It's Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. I want to read it to you. Matthew quotes it, but I'll read the prophecy so you see it. Matthew 5 and verse 2 says this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Now you notice that Matthew says they quoted that verse, but they left off the last half. Matthew doesn't record that they said that. Why is that? Because the prophecy actually shows forth that the Messiah, the King of the Jews, he's more than just another king. He's the eternal one. He's the eternal king. So Herod's trying to find out this information. He has no tolerance for another king. As we see in verse 7 through 8, he seeks a time frame. What time did the star appear? He's going to use that information later. He then seeks to deceive them in verse 8, saying, once you find him, come tell me so I also can come worship him. And we know that he's 
lying and deceptive, and God's providential hand is over Christ. But here's what's interesting. How interesting, though, is this response of Herod and the religious leaders of Israel? Herod wants to kill the Jewish king. That's, that's, I mean, that's expected. And the, but the Jews, the Jews who want their Jewish king, they could care less about this news. They don't even care. I mean, this is a foreshadowing of Christ's future in relation to Israel. He came to His own, and what happened? His own people did not receive Him. John 1.11 Nevertheless, we see Gentiles, the Magi, seeking Him by divine drawing. John Calvin comments and says, His majesty shines in the east, while in Judea it is so far from being acknowledged that it is visited by many marks of dishonor. Now, this leads me to more questions. Why the Magi are convinced that the king of the Jews has been born, and why Israel so dumbfounded by that? Why did they believe such, having come from such a distant land? What motivated them to travel such a long and dangerous journey? Well, that brings us to number two this morning. Notice number two, we see the revelation to the wise men. We see their expedition, who they are, where they come from, what they're seeking. But notice number two, we see the revelation to the wise men. What's been revealed to them that causes them to come all this way? And it's twofold. The first aspect I want you to see here is that there is a special star, a supernatural star that directed them to Christ. Notice verse two. What prompted them to head towards Jerusalem? They say, we saw his star when it rose, specifically in the east. We saw his star from the east. Now, as masters of astrology, they were constantly paying attention to what? The stars. Their heads were always looking up into the sky, studying the stars. But what was this star? What is this phenomenon? Now, there's many who have attempted to explain it in a natural or scientific way. Some, some astronomers believe this star was a conjunction of the planets Mars and Jupiter and Saturn aligning, causing a new extraordinary star in the sky. Others believe this was a supernova, which is a star that suddenly increases greatly in brightness because of a catastrophic explosion that, uh, into its mass. There's been all kinds of natural and scientific explanations that try to, try to, try to tell us about how, what this star was. But one thing we understand here is that none of those things can fit this. Why? Well, what happens with the star in verse 9? The same star that brought them to Jerusalem, appears again. And in verse 9, what do we read? That same star went before them until it came and stood over where the young child was. This star is moving. How many stars move in this fashion? It's not a natural thing. It's not planets aligning. It's not some supernova. This is a, this is a supernatural miracle that is, that God is using to guide them. This is a sign from the Lord. Now, it had apparently ceased from their sight when they got to Jerusalem. Otherwise, they would have gone on into Bethlehem. So, for God's providential purposes, He had them go in and stir the city up. But notice, when God shows the star again, it guides them to Jesus, to the very house where the young child was. This is as close as you could get to GPS back in that day and time. Now, I don't know about you, I'm very thankful for GPS. 
the generation before me that used only maps, I don't know how you did that. <laughs> I give you props for that. I've tried it, and I have failed many times. But I'm, I'm dependent on GPS. It gives me right to the exact location. God does this for the Magi. This star guides them to, its, to where it's over the house, and, and so they're seeing something that is miraculous, something unknown. They've never seen a star like this before. Now, does this light in the sky reflect anything we see in the Scriptures? Absolutely. God has used other supernatural means to give natural guidance to His people. Remember the cloud and the pillar of fire in the wilderness? God used those to guide His people where they ought to go. And so this instance is very similar. And it further shows these these, these students of the stars the glory of God in the heavens. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Only the God of all creation could cause such a supernatural phenomenon to guide these magi from a distant land nearly 800 miles away to a specific, specific house in a little insignificant town known as Bethlehem. This star displays the glory of God. But how did these wise men know this star was connected to the king of the Jews? Couldn't this star have just been perceived as some, oh, wow, look at that. Never seen that before. What causes them to connect this star to a specific king? Did they have any other revelation that contributed to them making this journey? Not only do we see there's a supernatural star that contributed to this, but letter B, we see the sacred scriptures revealed Christ to them. Now, understand this. When Israel was carried off into exile many years ago, where were they taken? They were taken to Babylon. Same area, Persia, where these men have come from. What did what went with them? Many of the Jewish artifacts, furniture of the temple, and also the Scriptures. Did God have any Scriptures written while His people were there? Absolutely He did. You ever read the book of Daniel, Ezekiel? Even some of the Psalms are attributed to being written in exile. You see, these magi, they're not only students of the stars. What else are magi students of? They are students of all sacred writings. What does that mean? That means the magi, no doubt, would have been students of the Scriptures that were there in that land. Now, as you consider this, Is there scripture in the Old Testament that seems to make a connection with this? There is. It comes from Numbers, chapter 24 and verse 17. God used Balaam, a Gentile, to prophesy of the coming king, saying this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now this statement in this prophecy, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Guess what the Jews interpreted that to be mean? Their coming Messiah and future king. This was about Him. It was taken by the Jews as that promise. So this star is associated with Christ. And notice the Magi in verse 2. What do they call this supernatural star? They don't just say it's a star. What do they say here? They say, we have seen whose star? His star. 
They identify the star with a person. It's connected to the king of the Jews that they are seeking. Now we read later in Scripture and we see Jesus connecting this kind of imagery with himself. Revelation 22 and verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning, what? Star. You see, Jesus is the star and scepter, ruler, the king, who was promised to come, penned in the Jewish Scriptures, that the Magi would have had access to. But think next even further than that. This connects to the star, but I, I take it a little further. Think about the influence of Daniel and other Jews in the East. We read that the Lord blessed certain Jews while they were there with greater knowledge and understanding even than the Magi that were there. Think about that. Daniel 1, 19 and 20 says this, The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is their Hebrew names here. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So understand the high status of the Magi in that day and time. And Scripture says that Daniel and these his three friends, they were esteemed as ten times greater than them. Ten times greater than the Magi of that day and time. When the Magi couldn't help Nebuchadnezzar with his dream, who was able to do so? Daniel. Daniel, when the Persian king Darius took over, who did he put in authority even above the Magi? Daniel. Daniel. We read of this in Daniel 6, verse 1 through 3. I'll read this just briefly just to give you backdrop here. It pleased Darius, he's the Persian king now, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, which are princes, to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel, notice verse 3, became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was within him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. I find all these connections fascinating to me. Because Daniel takes his, God takes his people who are foreigners in a distant land, taken captive. And he say, takes people like Daniel and sets them above even the wisest of the wise in their time. He put him on a higher level than the Magi of that day. Now understand, if the Magi continued their diligent practice of studying the sacred writings, even after the Hebrews came back to the land, do you think they at all would have studied the book of Daniel? given his reputation, given who he was, how wise and powerful he became. They would have held him with high regard, considering who he was and how he was used in the kingdom, both in Babylon and in Persia. Now, what do we find Daniel writing about in his book? There's all sorts of prophecies that concern who? The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. Now, is there a specific prophecy that Daniel penned that gives a timeline in which the Messiah would come? There is. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24 through verse 27. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, 
But this is a, a key and critical prophecy concerning the timeline of the Messiah's coming. This is what's known as the 70 weeks prophecy. 70 weeks equals out to 490 years by most estimations. But what's unique about this prophecy is that it gives a starting point of when it begins. When a particular decree is given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the decree, this 70 weeks would begin. Now, there is some debate around certain specifics of this text, but one thing that is central to it is that God has allotted a specific amount of time for these events to unfold, and one of those events is the coming of Messiah and Him being cut off or killed. Just as God told Jeremiah, they're going to be in captivity for how long? Seventy years. Seventy years came, they came back, right? God says the same thing here in a different way. 490 years is this limit of this prophecy. And so what we find with this prophecy, just in summary, Daniel says that the Messiah would be cut off, put to death at some point after 483 years. This means that he must be born at some point before that, with enough time to grow to die in such a fashion. The point is that Daniel gives a timeline for the Messiah to arrive, and the Magi had direct access to this prophecy. Now, this can be somewhat speculative, I'll agree, because it doesn't say that they read this, but we can only assume based on who they were and what they did that this has an influence on them, especially with Daniel's prominent position. So what we see with this text, and what I'm trying to point out to you with the wise men and their mysterious nature, is that they had a God-given revelation to them that brings them to the king of the Jews. The supernatural star connected with Numbers 24-17. The time frame known of when the Messiah would be here at some point. Daniel 9, 24-27. And then when they finally get to Jerusalem, guess what? They get direction from another prophet, the prophet Micah. You see, the Word of God has been instrumental in, in bringing them to see the King of the Jews, which leads us to number three this morning. We see the adoration of the wise men towards Jesus. Their adoration of And I love just to imagine this scene in this moment. There's several things to point out. But I want you to notice that they arrive and they, what do they do when they arrive? They worship Jesus as the child. Now, as the wise men head towards Bethlehem, stepping out of Jerusalem, you can just imagine, there that star appears. It had disappeared, but there's that star again. The same one that brought them to Jerusalem, and now it's leading them six miles south of Jerusalem, to this little town called Bethlehem. In verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly to see that star. Now, I imagine following a star all the way from, from Persia or Babylon to Jerusalem, all those hundreds of miles, and then it disappears, and you don't know, where are we going to find this king? And now it reappears. That would have been a true, joyous thing. About like losing service, losing your GPS, and then you're lost, and then you pops up again. You get service again. Been there, done that. As they follow this star, verse 9, notice this, when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
Imagine seeing a star that settle over one little house. It had been with you all through the land and journey, and now it's just settled over one little house. You see, see, God has brought them to this specific house, and it just stops there, silently, but brightly proclaiming, He's here. This is where He's at. Now, notice in verse 11, the Magi finally get to fulfill what they set out to do on this long journey. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down. And what did they do, church? Worshipped him. Notice they didn't worship her. Worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now, pause and consider this a moment. Jesus is no more than two years old when they meet him. In case you didn't know, this is not the manger scene. It's not. Now, Christmas portrays it all together. and That's fine for decor and whatever. But this is nearly two years, at least, uh, not, not more than two years, after Jesus has been born. They're not in the manger. They're in a house. He's not a baby. What's the Scripture say he is? He's a child. So Jesus is, 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 is less than two years old, two and under. And they come into this house, and these wise men, these powerful, prominent, wealthy men, they bow themselves before this child who is less than two years old. Imagine walking into the nursery and bowing before one of those little babies in there, running around. You think, oh, that's just a crazy thing to do. But this was not an ordinary baby. He wasn't an ordinary child. This really is the king of the Jews and the king of all creation. What's fascinating here is that these students of the stars who followed a star to get here are bowing in worship before the creator of the stars. Bowing in worship before the one who spoke all things into existence. They're bowing before the very One who created all that is. As John the Apostle wrote in his Gospel in John 1.3 of Jesus, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is why the coming of Jesus is so important. Because He wasn't just another religious figure that came into history. He's the eternal God who took on humanity for the purpose of saving sinners. Despite their pagan background and powerful influence in the Babylonian and Persian courts, these magi worship Jesus for who He is as the King of the Jews. And in their worship of Jesus, what do we find they do? The Bible tells us they opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts, Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Do you understand that these gifts were some of the most valuable things that you could get your hands on in that day? We know the value of gold, but in that day, frankincense and myrrh, those were very, very valuable. Gifts fit for a king. And what's interesting, I think, is providence. Because Mary and Joseph, were they wealthy? They were a poor and lowly family. And what's getting ready to happen for them here just shortly after the wise men leave? They're going to have to take a long journey to Egypt. They're going to have to live there for a little bit and then journey all the way back up to Nazareth. God providentially is providing for them for what is going to come. 
What a, what a precious story this is. Now, some, some disagree as to whether these magi were truly converted or not. Some claim they were just practicing a Persian ritual of, of honoring any king that comes into the scene. But I tend to think that the supernatural nature of God bringing these specific magi to Jesus speaks to the effect that they may have spiritually been affected by all of this. One can't be dogmatic about it. But ultimately, the Magi represent the Gentile worship of the Jewish king that was promised. Isaiah 60 and verse 3, All nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Friend, this points out something to me. Christ did not come just for one class of people in society. He didn't only come for the lowly or only come for the wealthy. He didn't only come for, for, for those who were humble and had no social status or for only those who had a high social status. Understand this. Christ came for sinners despite any other kind of status. It does not matter how intellectual they were, how financially well off they were, what their social or racial differences were. The Bible says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and He has lost among all people. This is why we ought never to look down on anyone, but to understand that everyone needs the gospel of Jesus. And whether they repent and believe, it's not our business. The gospel must go to all men without exception. And that brings me to letter B, and I'll close with this. I want you to see their witness for Jesus. Their witness for Jesus to us. There's a particular saying that says, wise men still seek Jesus. Anybody seen that around this time of year? Pretty common. It is a true saying. But the natural man in the world around us does not have such wisdom to seek Jesus in this fashion. As we see through this text, the reason these wise men are seeking Jesus is because they have already been sought by divine intervention. Were it not for the supernatural star, they would not have come. Were it not for the scriptures, they would not have come. And so this account is here, understand, because the wise men who sought Jesus were brought to Jesus by God's providential working. And today it is God's truth again. His revelation of Scripture and work of the Spirit that causes men to seek Jesus, brings us to be in Him. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30 through 31, because of Him, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now I think about their journey, and we think about all that they experienced. We think of how great a distance was between these magi and Christ, and yet God reached them. But I can't help but think of how great a distance there is between us and Christ separated from his land, separated from his era by thousands of years. And yet, you who know Christ still know him today. Why is that? Because of God's grace alone. God's grace. We think of how marvelous this journey must have been for the Magi as they journeyed to Israel and then back home, having met the king they set out to meet. Never before had they been guided to a king by a star in this way. Never were their sacred scriptures so precise as God's. And friend, given what we see with the Magi, 
what they had and the revelation they followed to seek Jesus, how much greater should we seek Jesus to know Him, to worship Him, to serve Him, given the amount of revelation of Him we have from God? We have so much more given to us than even the Magi had by the Scriptures and the Spirit within us. Calvin quotes, and I'll close with this, If the sight of a star had so powerful an effect on the Magi, woe to our insensibility, who now that Christ the King has been revealed to us are so cold in our inquiries after Him. And this certainly rings true in many ways. We have a wealth of information. We have a wealth of sacred Scripture that is given to us so that we can know, know this King that we read about. Know this King who came into the world, the God-man. Let us not take that lightly. Let us not take that for granted. Friend, today the the wise men no doubt were impacted from this journey to Jesus. We think of their thoughts, their joy, how it might have impacted them, but that's, that's all good and well to consider. But the most important thing to consider this morning is how has the coming of Jesus impacted you? Has the coming of Jesus into this world, has it changed your life? Do you know Him? Not do you know about Him, but do you genuinely know Him? You've met Him by faith in your own heart, that His sacrifice was for you, His resurrection was for you, and that He, though you're not a perfect person, He is working to change. I pray today that you know Him in this fashion. And if you do not, if you don't know Him in this fashion, you must look to Christ, for He is the only salvation for any sinner. None none else but Him. Let's stand to our feet as we close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, we bow before You this morning and thank You for this wonderful text of Scripture before us. It's often been somewhat mysterious, generated a lot of questions about the Magi, who they were, where they came from, about the star, about all of it. Father, I'm thankful that Scripture can piece it all together for us. I'm thankful, Father, for this account that shows us how far they were willing to go to see the King. And Father, I pray that this text and message would challenge all of us in our love for Christ, our worship of Him, and our pursuit of of Him in our lives. If there be one here today that does not truly know You, Father, I pray that Your Spirit and Word would convict their heart, draw them to Christ, bring them to faith, that they may know, they may know Him and be changed by His arrival as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.